Gary Griggs has been a professor of earth sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz since 1968. His research and teaching have been focused on the coast of California and include coastal processes, hazards, engineering, and sea level rise. Dr. Griggs has written over 185 articles for professional journals, as well as authored or co-authored 11 books. In 1998, he was given the Outstanding Faculty Award at UC Santa Cruz. He has served on three National Academy of Science committees, and in 2015, was appointed to the California Ocean Science Trust. Professor Gary Griggs, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be part of it. <laughs> and so, I mean, you've been a professor, I think, of over 50 years. I, I couldn't quite believe it because looking at you, you're you look so young. Tell us a little bit about your journey and why you decided to educate and inspire people about our oceans and shores and how we can be better stewards of our planet. So that's a really good question. I guess we all ask ourselves how we ended up where we are today. Um, and a lot of people ask me, well, you're still teaching. This is my 54th year, which I think says, you know, I really enjoy it and derive a lot of satisfaction from it. And I think it goes back um, to my childhood, actually, um, spending a fair amount of time outside, out of doors. We lived in a farm for a couple of years. Um, we would spend our summers camping along the coast and out in the forest. And I realized pretty early on that I was really sort of a nature person, but I hadn't really thought about teaching. And I had one interesting experience as we would take off every year on our summer camping trips from outside of Los Angeles, which was urban. We drive the first day up to the San Francisco Bay area to um, Berkeley, where University of California Berkeley is. And my father had gone to Berkeley and one of his roommates ended up remaining there as a professor for many, many years. And I remember being just enthralled. He studied oh, geography and people and places and was a much loved teacher. And I remember um, they had this great old craftsman house and things he'd collected on his journeys and travels were all over the house and books. And I said, well, that looks like a really wonderful job. And I knew he had a doctor's degree, which as an 11 year old, I knew that wasn't an MD. And so I kind of wondered about that. So I asked my father, well, what did he have to do to get a doctor's degree? Because that was going to be a step. And my dad very correctly in some ways said, oh, he had to write a book, which a PhD thesis is like a book. But as an 11-year-old who had trouble writing a letter, I said, well, that's probably not going to be my profession. <laughs> but, you know, how many years later, that's where I ended up. And I think all of our lives are filled with serendipity. You know, we turn the corner, you run into somebody and your whole life changes. Or, And as I was finishing up my PhD in geological oceanography, um, many people like me were being hired by the oil companies because this is a big era of offshore drilling. We were extending our reach into the ocean. And I had an interview with what became ExxonMobil. It was then Humble Oil. And they were inviting me to, to Houston to give a talk on my work to the oil company scientists. And at the same time, a professor I'd had as an undergraduate had been invited to come to the University of California, Santa Cruz, where I am today, and start a new department. He kept in touch with me and knew I was sort of a 
reasonably intelligent person. <laughs> and he called me saying, I think we have a job for an oceanographer. So just as I was ready to make a trip to Houston and sign up with an oil company, I ended up at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where I've been ever since. And, you know, I walked into my first class without ever having given a lecture. And by the end of that quarter, I was humbled by the students and their, you know, kind of reactions. And I just sort of thanked them all for being there and going through this experiment with me in education. And they all stood up and clapped. <laughs> and I felt like, okay, this is going to be what I want to do. And 54 years later, I'm teaching the same class <laughs> and I love it. So you've been at Santa Cruz uh, all this time. Describe a little bit, you know, what the situation was like then. I you know at the time it was just like, you know, the beginning of Earth Day and the raising of awareness. I mean, to what extent do you feel that you're a, a teacher advocate? You know, you've, you've branched out into many other fields besides teaching now. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, I, you know, I, I'm a big person on um, sort of quotes and proverbs. And one is from Nelson Mandela's education is the most powerful tool we have for changing the world. And I think I think about that every day. And um, now that I've been teaching for over 50 years, I sort of added up roughly. And I've now had about 16,000 students. Um, and I guess somewhere in the back of our mind as a professor, we, we imagine that we had some influence <laughs> on everybody that was in our classroom. And I've had some real stars. Um, and then others, you have no idea where they went. But, you know, it doesn't take too many who said, wow, you changed my life. Or, you know, I didn't even know what I wanted to do until I took your class. And now I'm going off and I'm a, you know, whatever, a teacher, a professor, an advocate. And a number of my graduate students that are now masters and PhDs, um, and I've had about 75 of those are now college professors. And you kind of see this chain of um, connection between the classes I taught and what they got out of them. But I think just looking out into a classroom, I'm, I'm teaching an oceanography class um, this quarter to 150 students. Um, and even though they're all masked, <laughs> because of the pandemic. Um, just seeing the looks on their faces and those that come up after class and ask questions and are trying to figure out what they're gonna do with their lives. I don't know, I just find really fulfilling and exciting. So, you know, I look forward to every day when I walk into that room, even after all these years, um, somehow the fact that you're, fact, the idea that you're affecting somebody's life in a positive way I think it'd be different if I was teaching, teaching, I don't know, calculus <laughs> or something that wasn't as applied and to me as interesting and important as the earth and oceans are, might make it a bit different. But I've always had this, um, I don't know, also this feeling of community responsibility that we have an obligation to put our information out there not only to those undergraduates, but also to the public. I directed our Marine Institute. You know, there's now been well over a million visitors and some of those are little kids and college kids and so forth that every one of those things you've done, maybe not every lecture, but you see a light go on in somebody's head. 
I have one student we could talk about. It's a little longer story who's sort of risen to the top and has often credited me with changing her whole career trajectory. She's now 71 years old. <laughs> and that's the, the hard thing sometimes to keep in mind that my first students are now in their early 70s, back from the you know, mid 60s. So I've had students come up multiple times now that have said, well, you know, my mom and my dad took your class. And then it was a couple of years ago where a young woman came in and said, my grandmother took your class. And you go, wow. I mean, it's obviously possible, but the fact that there's some memory in the system that they took your class. I now do this newspaper column every other week on the ocean. I've been doing that for 13 and a half years. Um, I've now written 350 some columns and I get people you know, writing back to me or people that I see in the community said, oh, I love your columns. I can understand them. That's the best part of the paper. So those little rewards for me are really important to know that you're reaching people. As you've stated, you've maintained a residency in the Santa Cruz area for many years. Um, but what specifically about the Northern California coastline for you has sparked decades of research? You know, it has... I want to say it has everything. <laughs> We're on the coast. We have the mountains. We have the redwoods. Um, we have a marine sanctuary. In some ways, California is a bubble. <laughs> you know, we're not Washington, D.C. We're not New York City. And even within California, Santa Cruz is a bit of a bubble because it's a modestly sized town with a university. So it's always, it hasn't always been. It's now a fairly progressive community. So, you know, new ideas, uh, new thoughts, new programs, new plans. I think there's few places I'd rather live where you're next to the ocean. You can see sort of the challenges and the problems out there that need to be worked on, you know, whether it's water quality or people or development. Um, and I've been involved in that for a long time. And we had what would have been the world's largest nuclear power plant proposed to her back in the 60s that I was involved in questioning and ultimately sort of having it turned down. And we had water pollution problems and you know proposed freeways and subdivisions and seeing in a small town where you can have some impact. And also the fact that we are a university and I get to teach um, all these years um, when I think of other places I would rather live, it's really hard to find a place that compares. Um, but for me, it's been this, you know, wonderful sort of, I guess, conglomeration of place and people and ideas that um, I find. And, and, you know, you can, in 10 minutes, you can be out on the wild coast bicycling on a wilder ranch and, and not see a person for two hours. Um, or you can go to San Francisco in an hour and a half if you're really looking for something else. It turned out to be a really great location for me. Also a university which has been, was sort of an experiment when it started um, with the multi-university like the UCLA's and the Berkeley's that had 40,000 students. Um, and students often felt they were pretty impersonal. They were sort of lost in you know, this massive campus. It creates other benefits, but Santa Cruz has always had this, um, this collegiate system. So we're divided into smaller colleges. It's set out in the Redwoods. So there's no big 
center with hundreds of people milling about. You feel like you're going to school in a national park. And that's that's made a difference for me also. I mean, we're bigger now. We have 18,000 students, but they're still spread out over 2,000 acres. So you you never feel like you're in a city. Many of us need to congregate in cities for our work, but natural environments are really where we came from. And, and, and the rhythm, the shores that you advocate to protect and educate people about, that's really what's in our system and in our ancient memory. Right. Cities are a new layering over that, um, but we all return to the natural world and our our dreams, I think. I'm wondering, as we face our our current challenges, how do you prioritize the change that needs to take place? I mean, in terms of where you choose to to advocate the most, uh, because I guess, you know, we are living in a crucial decade. Right, right. Well... I guess I've been fortunate in the choices I made while I was in school. I ended up my undergraduate degree was in geological science. That was sort of the grounding in the earth. But I took some ocean courses. And then in graduate school, my my PhD is in oceanography, but I minored in geology and civil engineering, which got into coastal engineering and water and wastewater. And those all sort of converge right at the water's edge. So I felt like I had the background to do a number of sort of interrelated things in teaching and research. Um, And most recently, the combination of coastal development, cities on the coast, and climate change and sea level rise have all sort of converged. So for the last probably 40 years, my work really focused on coasts and now more recently with sea level rise and what that means for people on the planet. Um, But this newspaper column I've been doing called Our Ocean Backyard is just a chance to explore a lot of things. Um, And it's not, I mean, I have seven or 800 words every other week. And first, this wonderful opportunity to reach out to a whole community, but second, it's this challenge that many of us who deal with um, sort of public communication in the media face, which is, um, okay, we're gonna talk to you for an hour, I'm not thinking about today, and you're probably gonna get a minute. <laughs> or, you know, give me some sound bites. And as a lecture, you wanna explain everything in great detail. So I do a lot of responding to you know, newspaper and media people and try to keep it short. And sometimes people say, well, that's okay, just explain it. So I guess as a public lecture, I probably cover much broader topics. And the other day I got asked to talk to a group on desalination, desalting seawater, which is pretty far from um, not sea level rise, but certainly part of climate change, the, the, the how the hydrologic cycle changes and you know, more people need more fresh water, we have drought and so forth. That was easy to do. And then I had one the other day on, you know, challenge at the edge, sea level rise in California's coast, where all this development around the, around the world really is threatened. And so that becomes, you know, a topic of a lot of talks I've given. And, you know, sometimes, well, I think you always need to know your audience. One of the most important things is not only what you talk about, but the vocabulary you use and, and how you talk about it. And I 
frankly, every time I get a call from the media, because I write myself, um, I see that as an obligation to respond to it. And I feel fortunate that the, the things I've studied and taught about over the years make those easy things to talk about versus somebody, again, who's studying or an expert in Italian literature or Shakespeare or calculus, which is, from my perspective, really hard to make exciting and engaging to the general public. <laughs> you know, kind of your elevator speech. <laughs> Yeah, it's so it's true because we we all have a relationship to nature and we depend on it. You know, we can, none of us can live without water, even if you're not even thinking about it that much. And I want to go back into that a uh, little bit of the desalination and, and maybe um, your um, feelings about the different geoengineering projects, because sometimes that's controversial. You know, I, obviously, we always want a, a natural, the most natural solution. Sometimes we need to help nature get back to nature. And I wonder, you know, what your feelings are about that. And of course, many projects are, you know, they differ. Right, right. And sort of within that question, the column I did um, on Sunday was called The Earth Has Limits. <laughs> and there's several different websites today. This one particular one allows you to take a number of questions, any individual, and they're based sort of around transportation. How often do you fly and how far do you go? How many hours do you drive a big car, you ride a bicycle, your food, you eat a lot of meat versus vegetables. Do you eat locally sourced food? Your house, do you have solar panels or is it a new house and it's insulated, energy saving? And then there's one called stuff. <laughs> How much stuff do you buy every day from someplace? And each of those gives you a um, sort of an environmental footprint. And when it's all done, it adds up for you. If everybody on the planet lived like you did, how many planet Earths would it take for the Earth's almost 8 billion people? And, and it also gives you an accounting for different countries. And there's places like... India, if everybody lived like they did in India on average, it would take um, less than one earth to support 7.8 billion people. If you look at France and England and Germany, it takes about 2.7 earths on average. If you look at the United States as a whole, it takes five earths, but clearly we don't have five earths. <laughs> And a number of people, I, I got 48 responses from readers on this, and it was interesting to see their, their scores, how many years, and their comments. They thought because we live in sort of an environmentally conscious community that they must not have much impact. They ride a bicycle once in a while. They change their light bulbs to incandescent, or whatever they do. And many of them, the average was about 3.3 um, Earths in our environmentally conscious community so that was kind of, a, I think, a wake-up call for a lot of people that they were, it was illuminating, even though they thought they were very environmentally conscious. In today's society, we have, you know, we all drive cars, we all use fuel, we want to be warm, we like to buy stuff, and it adds up. So I think what you say about technology and engineering, certainly um, here in California and in certainly around most of the Mediterranean and Africa, we are water short. And, you know, people are dying every day from thirst, 
a lot of young children are dying every day. There isn't enough water or good quality water. So um, desalination has been around for a long time. Um, and even in a place that's water short, um, and even in a community like we live in, no matter how progressive the idea is, there are people who will you know, fight to the death for their view on it. And, and we started a plan for a desalination plan and pretty soon, <clears throat> and we've had droughts a number of times recently and it's getting worse where we start rationing water. And so we've gone to conservation, which, which can go so far but then we want to drink, we want to wash our clothes, we take showers, we wash our dishes, we want to garden. At some point, you can only conserve so much the way we live. And so looking at options, desalination is one of those, but there was a whole group who just opposed it. And we get these typical arguments that are raised, which um, one is, well, it costs a lot of money. Exactly. But anything we do today, it's going to cost a lot of money. If it was a free water supply, we'd do that. It takes a lot of energy. And everything we do, whether we build a dam or pipe water, is, takes a lot of energy. And the other is the ocean impacts. And those, I think, as a good environmentalist, whether it's an offshore wind farm or a power plant or whatever, you come up with every possible argument against it, whether they're valid or not, whether they're important or not, to try to suppress or halt that project. And because I'm an oceanographer, I think the ocean issues are really manageable. Um, but anyway, that plan was halted and now we're back on rationing water again and we're starting to revisit. But I had a number of my newspaper columns on this and what I try to tell people is, at least in that column, I try to educate, not advocate, so that people trust me as a source of um, information rather than having alternate facts or <laughs> whatever. So I think it's important to be um, in my role to be um, honest, um, but also try to be, when I get through, I mean, I have my own personal views, but when you get through with the talk, that people or an article that people, well, was he for that or against it? <laughs> so that they can see that I have some credibility. And as a scientist, once you lose credibility, it's really hard to get it back again. You know, if you're sort of the hired gun for a project, oh, that person works for the oil company. And I think in the US, that's what the oil companies are suffering with now. They've been, you know, putting out climate change denial stuff for so long that. Uh, at least in many circles, they're not trusted anymore. What we call greenwashing, you know, you. <laughs> um, but I, because most of the world's people are along coastlines, sea levels rising. There's a lot of engineering issues about seawalls and um, armoring the coast. And I think, you know, a lot of countries are struggling, and a lot of coastal states are struggling with that. And that's something I get involved with a lot. You know, how do people's homes compared to public use of the beach. Um, so I'm not, I don't say I struggle with it. I just try to maintain sort of a, a clear course, putting out um, information that I think is, can be trusted by people. Um, and, and I see that in my writing too, that you're, I'm not writing uh, an advocacy book, but trying to, I, I came out with a book two years ago called, um, Coasts in Crisis, 
in looking at all the issues around the world, not only that affect people along coasts, hurricanes, typhoons, tsunamis, sea level rise, but then all the ways in which these concentrations of people affect coasts. So whether it's wastewater discharge or oil drilling or overfishing. Um, and when it was in its review stages, a colleague, you know, cause I would raise these issues, a colleague who reviewed it for the book company said, and so, <laughs> so what do we do now? So I ended every chapter with, where do we go from here? You know, what are the options to drought? What are the options to overfishing? What are the options to offshore oil? And that was a, a good realization for me that you have to give people solutions and really important. And I say that as an educator, but also as a, as a father, I have five kids and as a grandfather, I now have five grandchildren. Um, we always have to have hope. Um, that's really important. I mean, there's particularly these last, whatever, 20 some months of COVID, I think of the, I mean, we're old enough to know, we'll get through this, you know, we're sort of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, but for young people in particular, say high school, college kids who didn't even get to go to college their first year because they were stuck at home because the colleges were closed, it can be pretty depressing. I mean, with climate, with COVID, with, you know, racial things, with um, all the issues we're facing today, it, it could, you could just get totally discouraged and say, you know, I'm going to go live in a cave in the woods or whatever else. So I try to, in my talks and my writing, give people hope that, you know, we've, we have a lot of success stories. And, and from time to time, there's things that are obviously uh, not successful yet. And I think energy and climate change and these talks on Edinburgh or sort of or Glasgow are sort of an example of that. And Greta Thunberg from Norway, I mean, she's sort of become this young spokesperson, blah, 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 now do something. Um, and I really have to admire and respect her at her age for stepping out that far. I mean, she has a huge audience now, and I think young people have to live with these issues the longest, but they have these amazing challenges in front of them. And I try to tell my students, you know, we haven't solved all of our problems by any stretch. So don't ever feel there's nothing left for you to do. There's a lot for you to do. My name is Hannah Besley, a junior at the George Washington University in Washington, DC, majoring in environmental studies and international affairs. And I'm an associate environmental podcast producer and interviewer for the Creative Processes One Planet podcast. I hope to one day work on international climate policy, advocating for crucial environmental issues, including the ones highlighted by Dr. Griggs, such as sea level rise and coastal erosion. As someone from the Bay Area, I have been a fan of Gary Griggs' work for many years, even volunteering at the Seymour Marine Center, a science museum in Santa Cruz that Dr. Griggs helped to start. Dr. Griggs' influence is immeasurable. Having taught thousands of students and contributing hundreds of papers to scholarship, his legacy has cemented him as a pioneer of environmental research and advocacy. His passion for empowering young people to fight for the climate is inspiring as it is necessary. As the finishing of COP26 looms, we look to the future of international climate agreements and pledges. The fate of our planet rests in decisions we must make in the next decade. 
and my generation must be ready to carry on advocating for adequate climate protections. The world cannot supply us with the amount of resources we need in the short time that we need them. The effects of human impacts on the environment are far-reaching, much more than simply warming annual temperatures. Our sea levels are rising from melting ice, ocean acidity is increasing, coral reefs are dying, plastics will soon overtake the amount of fish in the ocean, natural disasters are becoming more frequent, our coasts are eroding, animals are going extinct at faster rates, and the list goes on. To put it plainly, the earth just can't keep up. We must learn not only to recognize, but to accept the signs of climate change, both locally and globally, so that we may create meaningful counteraction to address it. I find Dr. Griggs's example of different countries' consumptions to be particularly powerful. Although we may not want to admit it, Americans consume much more than we think, so much so that it would take five times the Earth's resources for everyone on the planet to live as we do. We must take the time to recognize our own environmental impacts in order to create successful change. This means giving up or modifying the convenience of many day-to-day -day services and commodities that we currently rely on, like single-use plastics, fast fashion, and frequent air travel. I applaud Dr. Griggs for his lifetime's work and dedication to our natural world, and I'm grateful for his continued faith in the upcoming young leaders of the climate movement. And now, back to the interview with Gary Griggs. And I think that that message of hope, I mean, you know, being tough, being tough on the legislators, being tough on ourselves in terms of the sacrifices that we are willing to make, but also hope because nature has so many beautiful, efficient solutions that sometimes we just have to let it do its thing without getting right. in the way of it. Let, let the rainforest do its thing. Let the Make sure the forest do these things. It's there. You talk about water sources or desalination. Sometimes we don't have to conserve so much. It's just to make sure there's water, natural water purifiers and we just make sure that those conditions are there and we don't get in the way of it. So as you briefly spoke about one of the environmental hazards that you've pioneered advocacy for specifically in the California area is coastal erosion. So if you could explain some more about this phenomenon and what it means for people living on coasts around the world. You know, it's funny, the shoreline is probably one of the most important lines on the planet. It's where most of the big cities are, but it's moving <laughs> and it's moving towards us because sea levels rising and sea levels rising because ice is melting and as the ocean warms, it expands. So this is a massive problem. Um, and if you look around the planet today, whether it's in the US, whether it's Miami, New York, or Boston, or Philadelphia, Charleston, they're right on the coast, virtually at sea level. And if we look around the world, you know, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Jakarta, Dhaka, most of the world's big cities with a few exceptions are on the coast virtually at sea level. So as sea level continues to rise, they're all in trouble. And there's only so many things we can do. And, and there's both erosion where the cliffs or the bluffs are retreating. And there's flooding where low-lying areas like um, Miami um, is one example. New Orleans is another example. Jacquard is another example. They get flooded many days out of the year and those numbers are increasing where the where the land is very flat a foot of sea level can move the shoreline in a thousand feet 
So I think most countries are now struggling with, well, I shouldn't say most countries, many coastal countries are now trying to decide what do we do until fairly recently, there was still a lot of denial in places like Florida. Well, they finally have woken up and say, seen, wow, we're getting flooded once a week. Um, you see these pictures of people. I mean, Venice is another example that's sort of been with us for a long time. You see people, you know, wading through the streets with plastic bags over their legs because it's three feet deep in water. Um, and that's not just a momentary thing. This is an upward trend. And the question is not, is it happening? We know it's happening. It's, um, you know, how soon is it going to become impossible to live in these places like Venice um, or Miami? And then how do we deal with it? So um, it's something I've been studying for a long time. And, you know, the number of solutions are finite. There's denial. That's not very effective. It's, it's really cheap until it happens. There's the thing we've done most often, which is armor. We can build these massive walls and rock revetments. And um, I mean, Northern Europe has done that for centuries. Maybe the Dutch are the best example, but even the Dutch are starting to move back. We can't, nothing we can do is gonna hold back the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean forever. We just can't do it. So we've done it for a while. Uh, and any new structures today, we have to really question and, and say, how long is that good for? Um, in the States, the Army Corps of Engineers is now proposing walls around cities, at least parts of the cities. And some of the arguments are that the neighborhoods where the poor disadvantaged people live aren't being protected. Um, and we're seeing more and more of this issue of environmental justice, who gets who gets the benefit. Um, and then we've got um, what's been proposed recently, and this may come back to a thing about um, sort of nature and this idea of living shorelines and green shorelines where we let nature protect us. And that works in some places like coral reefs and mangroves where they sort of can reduce wave energy and hold the shoreline in place, at least for a while. On a really high energy coast like California, for example, there's nothing we can plant there that's going to stop sea level from rising. So, but in low-lying estuary areas, it, it can be effective for a while. But if we look at the total amount of potential sea level rise on the planet, if we melt all of the continental glaciers, it's like the Alps, the Andes, the Himalayas, we could raise sea level. And that's happening, by the way. We could raise sea level two more feet. And that doesn't seem like much, except um, there are a lot of people in the world living within a couple of feet of sea level. If we melt all of Greenland, sea level would rise another 24 feet. And if you look at what's within 24 feet, probably a billion people. The big 800-pound gorilla in the room is Antarctica. And if we melted all of Antarctica, we add another 190 feet. So if you add all three of those together, you get about 216 feet of total sea level rise. Um, I would say that may take care of at least half the world's people. Um, and if we look back historically, um, 
because climate has been changing naturally for as long as we've had an earth and a sun. It wasn't until about 8,000 years ago um, when sea level actually stabilized, which just corresponds with sort of the development of early civilization. So throughout the whole history of human civilization, sea level's been, the shoreline's been in the same place pretty much. And now it's moving. And we weren't ready for that. <laughs> so whether we call it coastal erosion or shoreline retreat, um, it's a massive problem. And we can engineer some things. There's now a plan. Well, I did some work on this, oh, I don't know, a year ago. We lo I looked at coastal airports. And many of the coastal airports were built out over water because there wasn't any, I mean, San Francisco is one and New York is one and Miami is one. They were built on fill out in the water, maybe two feet above high tide. And now all of a sudden, um, San Francisco, with about two feet of sea level rise above high tide, the, air, the runways go underwater. Uh, the New Orleans airport is below sea level now. So um, San Francisco, for example, proposed this now being studied a 10 mile long wall around the entire airport that they think will protect it till maybe 2075. And it's gonna cost about $500 million, but they think it's worth it because that's a huge economic engine. But airports is just one example of public infrastructure. Then we have most of our wastewater treatment plants that are the lowest point in the community because wastewater flows downhill under gravity. And you want them after they treat the water to have it just you know go off into the ocean. But as the ocean gets higher, that gets more difficult to accomplish. So there's a lot of things we've built um, as part of our big cities that weren't planned for sea level rise. So there's a lot of challenges that lie ahead um, that we're just beginning to come to grips with. And we still have people that think humans don't have anything to do with it. So let's keep burning fossil fuels. <laughs> Let's keep adding to the problem. <laughs> yes, and, and you pointed out, I mean, of course it's at the forefront of your mind because you're studying it, but just how closely linked human civilization, and I just don't only want to talk about human civilization, there's the natural world, but how much of what we think of, you know, contemporary society is really also the history of water. I mean, going back to the Romans, going back to all this agriculture, how that's been shaped by water. And as we look towards I mean, their projections, and I, and I know you know them, you know, uh, 2050 water insecurity for 36% of the cities, um, you know, I, I, I can't imagine, you know, what that means, and then what we have to do to act um, assertively and now to, to stop that. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, Mia. Water, you know, we can get along without um, energy. <laughs> Early people didn't have any energy. I mean, we need some food, but you know, water is critical. And we know a lot of civilizations now probably collapsed because of the lack of water. Certainly the Native Americans in the Southwest, and we go through these periods of drought and abundance. And Egypt is a great example. They say Egypt is the Nile and the Nile is Egypt. Um, it's this fertile corridor down the Nile and the Nile Delta that's allowed the you know, the early Egyptian civilizations to thrive and you get a period of drought. Um, 
the rain doesn't come, the crops don't come, and we've got to do something else. So, um, and as you said, there's a huge number of people already that don't have an adequate supply of fresh, clean water, even in the U.S. You know, we're not immune from that, um, particularly now that they're, they're, you know, tearing down orchards in California that they can't, um, they don't get any water this year because there isn't enough. And, and there's some amazing luxuries in a way. Um, California provides something like 70% of the nation's fruits and vegetables. You know, we have sunlight, we had water, we have good soil. The rest of the country raises corn and soybeans <laughs> and some wheat. And it turns out almonds are this huge cash crop. And it takes a gallon of water to make one almond. You see, is that a good use of our water? Um, I know. I don't, don't even tell me about avocados, which I love <laughs> as well. Yeah, we have some huge problems. And I think those of us in the, quote, you know, developed world, I've had the luxury of turning on our tap and having a nice shower and water to, to wash our dishes with and our clothes with. Um, but the rest of the world, I mean, you see these pictures of sub-Saharan Africa or even North Africa where um, we don't have any water. We don't have enough water. You know, why are, I, I can't help but think this instability we're seeing, people migrating from North Africa trying to get into Europe. A lot of that is just there's no life for them. There's not water. People are starving. They're hungry. They have repressive governments. But I think you're exactly right. Water has been the one thing that we have depended on. You see these old Roman aqueducts, for example, that are really amazing that are still there, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later that um, amazing engineers. Um, but if you don't have any water, <laughs> There's nothing to put in the aqueduct or the pipeline, so that long-term supply. And that's why I've come back to desalination. Even though we're running out of glaciers, which supply the water for probably 40% of the world's people from the Himalayas to China and India, but those glaciers are melting. Uh, we can always desalt seawater. We have 330 million cubic miles of ocean water. It's always going to be there. You just got three and a half percent salt in it. So can we use solar panels to accomplish, provide the energy we need? Because that's one of the arguments, you know, we have to burn oil or gas to produce the heat, to make the energy, to push them through the barriers. But um, every time we propose a solar plant someplace, there's somebody who's against it. <laughs> So we have these land use challenges, but still solar and wind are increasing really quickly and their costs are coming down really quickly. Um, so that gives me hope. We're all coming together now and whether we're present there at COP26 or not, we're thinking about it. It seems to, and it seems I think to most people who are, you know, care about these issues it, that it's really important for us not to act just locally. It's very important locally, but also for us to converge and have these agreements. Um, and, and also it helps us with our water management too, so that, you know, maybe you don't have to grow the crops that are using too much water in your region that can be grown elsewhere, you know, you can transport it, you know, just not, don't draw on the resources that you don't have. And if we have agreements, if we have things like, you know, earth law and different legislation, 
then we we can manage this. It has to be collective, right? Uh, what are your reflections on that? Yeah, that's come out of this question or this survey I gave the people who read my column this week on how many Earths does it take to support you? And what I say is there's there's just one Earth. <laughs> you know, we can send a little vehicle to Mars to drive around and it costs five billion dollars, but we're never gonna live on the, the rest of the world's people aren't gonna live on Mars. Maybe we can keep a few people alive in the space station. So I think you're right. It it takes this collective view and for whatever set of reasons, um, we've had challenges with that. Um, and I think what's happening now in Asia, for example, is um, dams being put in on streams and upstream drainages that are taking the water for the people that would have had it downstream. And particularly Southeast Asia with, you know, Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam, or depending on the water that comes down that um, China's built and is building, you know, more and more dams to use the water there. But when the glaciers melt, <laughs> there's not going to be any water coming down those streams. And we have the similar problem with the Colorado River that runs through the southwestern U.S. That the water was given out or allocated both to Mexico and I think seven U.S. states when we were in a wetter climate period. And now we're finding out drought, these reservoirs, the lowest point they've ever been, they're not generating electricity. And we sort of over allocated at a time when it was there and now it's not there. So how do we, and there's still people that are, you know, watering their golf courses. <laughs> and that's not a very community approach. I mean, not that golf is a bad thing, but in some places like the desert of Southern California, how many golf courses do we need? And is that the highest priority use for our water? I would say it's not, you know, maybe we can play on artificial turf or something. So I, I agree with you. We need to have our sort of collective creative solutions. And I think it's just been hard because of politics and, you know, nobody wants to, uh, I mean, you know, we've had so much problems between the last administration in this country and you know how they treated other countries and how they treated climate. Um, at least now I feel we're on sort of a stable footing, but we're still trying to rebuild relationships and get legislation passed, which has become, you know, we've lost the ability to compromise. So um, if you're not with me, you're against me. And somehow we have to get over that as, as a civilization, as a people, so that we're, realizing there is just one earth, there is just one planet, and there's only so much water, only so much fresh water, only so much um, fertile soil. You know, people fly across the U.S. in a plane. I guess it's like, you know, flying across the Sahara Desert and say, gee, there's a lot of land down there. We don't have a problem. So yeah, there's reasons why nobody lives there. So we've spoken um, a bit so far about the importance of water, both um, in historical and present human society, as well as um, natural processes in the world. So as you've mentioned briefly before in your written work, you've referred to the ocean as being our backyard. Um, so what would you say needs to change about our global perspective, our perception of the ocean or the hydrologic cycle in general, in order to ensure its preservation, our preservation as a people? I think it also comes back to what I just said, you know, we only have one planet. We, we basically have one ocean and what we've discovered as um, really hard to imagine, but the ocean has become about 40% more acidic 
what we call ocean acidification. And it has to do with carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels being dissolved in the ocean. And the way carbon dioxide reacts with water, we produce carbonic acid and excess hydrogen, and it's become more acidic, which means a lot of the plankton that make little tiny shells can't make their shells as effectively. And those are the food for the larger animals up the food chain. Coral reefs don't like acidic water. It starts to dissolve them as well as oysters and clams and crabs. So hard to imagine that the entire ocean has had its pH or its acidity changed, just like we're warming up the ocean. Um, and somehow I think until it maybe affects us personally, and we're seeing with say the fires in California, I mean, you know, fires in Siberia, 100 degree temperatures in Siberia, um, droughts around the world that I think people, hurricanes are beginning to sense that, yeah, maybe something is going on. <laughs> this isn't just, uh, you know, a political plot or something. So I, I, I'm not sure I have an answer, except again, I think education is important. And how do you, I mean, what I tried to do, we built the Seymour Center, which Hannah, you know, educates a lot of young children. And I think they are really the hope for the future. Um, they don't have all the biases and uh, you know issues we have. They're not carrying around all the baggage yet as they start out with this. And I think Greta, she's coming out with her boxing gloves on every day <laughs> saying, no more blah, blah, blah. We have to do something because I've got to live with this for you know 80 more years. And you old guys are, you know, sitting around like a business meeting. Um, so education is going to be really important. And I think every time I give a talk to no matter who the group is, I think people are really moved by our ocean backyard or the importance of the issues. And they say, what can we do? What can I do as an individual? And I say, there's something everybody can do and it doesn't cost you anything. And everybody's, I said, vote. Vote for the people that represent you. Because those are the people who are, believe it or not, or like it or not, are making the decisions, whether it's international agreements or infrastructure, um, how we're dealing with, you know, offshore wind or coal, that it, this can affect us in the long run. And, and the challenge is this planet is so big, we've had um, a lot of people on it for a long time using up resources. We're now coming up with, you know, proposals um, for, well, how do we get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere? Well, if you think of the atmosphere as being, you know, 50 or 100 miles thick <laughs> surrounding the planet, we're not going to just be able to stick a hose up there and suck it all out and take it out. And even if we could, we got to put it someplace. So I think we have to be careful about these, you know, sort of, there's this guy from um, the Netherlands who's proposed this system for cleaning plastic up out of the ocean. And it's sort of, um, it's, it's, it sounds like a great idea and he's raised millions of dollars from big donors because they wanna to contribute to something like this, but it is literally impossible to clean up the ocean that way. It's so big and so many of the, so much the plastic isn't floating bottles, it's tiny pieces that are now extending to hundreds of feet. 
we've got to cut it off at the source. It's like we can't get CO2 out of the atmosphere. We've got to quit producing it. So that that's part of the education, I think, that people can't just give a million dollars and think they fixed it. Um, I have a friend for years who was an engineer at Berkeley. And every time I'd come up with a new solution to an issue, he'd say, Gary, for every complex problem, there's always a simple answer. And it's always wrong. <laughs> and I try to remember that when somebody sticks their hands up and said, well, why don't we do this? And I said, yeah, it was a good idea. <laughs> Thanks for suggesting that. If it was that easy, we would have done it a long time ago. So now big problems, uh, big challenges, I think maybe a better way to put it. But we've got some really smart people. And, and um, as you said, if we start thinking collectively and quit arguing and struggling with each other, think about what could happen in the US with Democrats and Republicans actually working together on something. There's a novel idea. Um, maybe we have too many political parties who disagree on everything. <laughs> Yeah, I think we can learn a lot. We have to learn with a humility uh, to, to listen to nature. And, I, and uh, the indigenous perspective is really so important because they don't see themselves as separate from nature. That It is their backyard. Right. It's their home. And they're just guests in it. Um, yeah, I feel I mean, I'm very hopeful about the new technologies, but I also know uh, we also got ourselves into this into these problems through technology. Sometimes you can scale back the technologies and just um, right. respect that we have to live with fewer um, yeah. finite resources. Uh, as you you know look to the future and you reflect on water and the environment, uh, the challenges we face. Um, I guess you know also what if you think about the beauty and wonder of the natural world you know what are some of those things that you've seen and that you want to preserve for for future generations and and maybe if we don't pay attention we're losing them uh, and i think that's a critically important issue which is again comes back to hannah's issue about living here in santa cruz where we have we have a university in a redwood forest that's hundreds of years old and you could leave your laboratory or lecture hall and be alone in the woods and say, wow, this is majestic. We've got state parks and we have 50 miles of undeveloped coast between here and San Francisco that we can appreciate. So I think that is critically important, but I also think it sort of smacks into technology in that young people today um, what is it, this game they're playing? I have a, a, a grandson here who's into Minecraft. That's got to be some video thing that he does with his friends on the computer. He still gets out and they go camping and stuff, but I'm thinking of how our youngest generation has been raised um, their entire life. They've had um, cell phones and computers and, and computer games, and that's how do we put that aside? I mean, that's a big responsibility of parents. Okay, you get an hour a day of screen time. We're going to go out for a walk. <laughs> We're going to go out on the coast. We're going to go for a bike ride up in the mountains, get people back in touch with nature. So we realize, you know, we're part of that, but we've also been, you know, we've pretty well abused that. So how do we get out of the, out of our, bedrooms and our offices enough to realize how important you know and and when some the natural world is and, and when so many people today are in 
these large mega cities, you know, tens of millions of people where they there's so few trees even. Um, how do we, can we ever reduce the global population back to a more sustainable number like we had when, you know, the original peoples were here who did see themselves as part of the natural world, not conquer the natural world? How many minerals can we dig up? How many, you know, and those are, those are really challenging questions. And they're not really scientific questions, but social sort of philosophical questions. Yes, completely. And I think your point is is so important. You know, as we do live more this, this screen life that connects us but separates us, and, and as we become more digitally literate and the many literacies that we have, let's not forget there is a literacy to being able to read your environment and right. we're losing touch. You know, how do you read the weather or even the wonder of of birds, you know, and I was in the park and I'm seeing all these birds kind of gathering together and crying out in the sky and you think something was happening. And, and you know, in a matter of seconds, I realized they're just, they're calling to each other and then they just swoosh in the sky and then they take off. And the intelligence of that, of them being able to communicate and read the wind and read each other and move together. I think our politicians, I would love if we could we could come together and make those kind of um, smart and elegant and natural decisions. Um, we'll get there, I think. I, I want to thank you, uh, Gary Griggs, for a lifetime of, you know, your commitment to protecting um, the natural world, for telling the story of oceans and our shores, bringing science to people and helping us understand how we can better manage this most valuable resource that gives life to everything. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. Thank you, Mia and Hannah. I really am I'm honored to be part of your program. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Hannah Besley. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.